Milton Mason. I'm Stanley Bradley, and we're friends turned family getting together to tell stories, laugh, observe, and think. This is the Framley Meeting. And today we're going to talk about learning. And with learning, we chose that again with our theme of duality and words having two meanings. We thought a lot about learning, particularly formal and informal, because I think for both of us, learning is always an ongoing process. When you stop learning, you pretty much are ready to not do anything else anymore. So with learning, we really wanted to be expansive and not just think about schooling, like formal schooling, but just how you learn in general and how those two things, those two ways, those two pieces of knowledge work together. And um, yeah, so here we are. And the other thing I, I think too is um, that makes this relevant for us is that we are both former educators. That's how we met. Although I have gone substantially further away from the field of education than you have. Yeah, definitely. And I still work and I'm outside of the classroom now, but I still work in education at the job that pays me. Um, <laughs> so it is, it is like a big part of my life. It is probably, I guess, not to sound too grand, but I guess my life's work mm-hmm. in, a, in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's a topic that's kind of, I think, near and dear to my heart in the sense that um, I think it frames a lot of who I am. Like I, I would like yeah. to think that I'm a person who continues, who is, who is like always learning, who I like learning, I guess, mm-hmm. um, think a lot about who were your first teachers and like even just like the initial process of learning, right? Like clearly you start learning as soon as you are mm-hmm. in this world. Mm-hmm. And it's so funny, like you don't know you're learning until you get to school in some ways. When do you become cognizant of that? I'm not sure. See, I'm not even, I don't even know because so much of what we call learning of the way learning is framed is for us is formal education, right? Mm-hmm. But clearly it like you learn to walk. I mean, you, you learn start to, to talk. Like I was, one of my friends is a pediatric PT and does, shares a lot of stuff on her Instagram about like, you know, kids at like early development stages. And so I've started to just based off of looking at that and other things, reframe even my understanding of what young kids are doing, right? So even like playing is a way of learning their environment and learning the world. So, so yes, it's, it's early. So I'm curious to hear from you, like who were, who were your first teachers? Um, I think obviously my first teachers were my, my, what I call my village, mm-hmm. my family, aunts, uncles, the church, I think played a big role in my learning. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, based on what we talked about last week, that seems right. Yeah. So definitely that, um, I think I've always been curious Mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Like, I feel like I probably did a lot of, it's like you said, exploring my environment as a kid, mm-hmm. although I don't remember, but I feel like that's probably the kind of kid I was. And just quite frankly, I'm, I'm a little bit nosy. <laughs> so um, <laughs> that's accurate. I think I'm a little bit nosy. So <laughs> I can, I could see myself being that kid that always had his ear to whatever the grownups were saying and then them stay out like, of grown folks business and then them being like shut the door <laughs> go play that kind of thing uh-huh. um one thing that I did think about a lot was that I didn't have that to kill a mockingbird moment which okay. I feel like say more to explain about that like you've read have you read to kill a mockingbird do you remember it I'm a little embarrassed to say that I don't think I have read that all the way through okay. well, I'm that's tell not you. part of the curriculum at my white Christian school in Ohio okay well to kill a mockingbird for those of you who don't know, is a story about a young girl in the South. And it's basically her awakening to when she realizes who her, what her community is, right? Who her society is. She realizes she, it's a white girl and it's a white family. Her father's a lawyer and all of that. And she, it's, she comes to this moment when she realizes that what people say is people do different things than what they say. Mm-hmm. And so I don't think I ever had that to kill a mockingbird moment. Mm-hmm. And to kill a mockingbird is just an example of that moment. Just like in movies, the coming of age movies, when there's always that moment when it like crystallizes to people that there's a world outside of their house, mm-hmm. that there's mm-hmm. a word outside of their family. I don't know if I ever had that moment okay. learning, but 
again, I always, like I said, I was always observant that definitely, I guess this kind of goes along with the exploring is that I've always loved like the written, the written word. Like I've mm-hmm. always, like we, from as long as I can remember, I was always like, we always had Ebony and Jet mm. and Southern Living and newspapers like were always around my house or my grandmother's house. So mm-hmm. like, I'm sure even when I wasn't, when I didn't know how to formally read, I was also that kid that looked at the newspaper just because that's what everybody did. Like my grandmother, when I spent the summers with her, mm-hmm. the first thing she's gonna do is once she's done making breakfast and she's gonna sit down and look at the obituaries. Like I remember that mm. very specifically. Like that she opened up the Huntsville News and would look and see who died. Oh, and gosh. But also like, she also kept like tons of books around like cookbooks. Like there were just all, there was just always mm-hmm. what if you were an educator would call a print rich environment, I guess. Like even I remember like being in the car, like street signs, mm. anything that is tech, like those fascinated me. Like I wanted to know what they said. I loved like looking at the big overhead signs, mm-hmm. store signs, just any kind of writing hmm. intrigued me as a kid. Like I do know that I do. I remember feeling that. So yeah, I know that it, that has probably played a big part of my curiosity and wanting to learn, particularly in the formal realm. Right. Yeah, like I said, I like the written word a lot. Um, what about you? Um, I feel like a, a lot of those same things are true of me and my childhood. Um, I would say the church had probably an outsized role on, you know, just that decision of like, what do I do? Like how do this, don't do this. Um, that was a big a big thing. My family, I was thinking sort of specifically, uh, you know, of my mom, my dad, and my sister, my sort of like nuclear family. And the specific, if I could like kind of distill down the key things I learned from each of them, I felt like from the beginning is like my dad, I learned hard work. He was just like, he worked for the same company for like 30 years. He also was an entrepreneur. So I think I got a little bit of that sort of entrepreneurial vibe from him. Um, for my mom, I feel like I learned self-determination. She went and got her, I, I don't all of you remember why she didn't finish her undergrad right after high school, but then she went and finished her undergrad when we were like in our preteens, which to me just seemed cool and different. Like that didn't seem like something that moms did. Yeah, yeah, no, because it's hard. Right. Like yeah, have, it's hard. Have, like, I, I think I was 13 when she graduated. Yeah. And so I feel like having, so my sister would have been somewhere either 14 or 15. So having like two preteens, you know, and we were busy, you know, I yeah. did LA. And so I remember her doing that. And that felt very like self-determined. Like I was like, ah, like there's not like a set thing that you're supposed to do. Like no, you're just that's... whatever the thing is that you need to do for yourself. Is that what, that's what you do. Um, and then for my sister, I felt like I really learned focus and excellence. My sister was like, let me not, let me not say was, is probably the smartest person I actually know in real life. And uh, was always very good at school, was always very focused and like just took no prisoners when it came to like school and just doing well. Like I remember her and her group of friends, which speaks to like how she set up her life. All her friends were also smart. They were all like co-valedictorians. They all had like four point something, 4.12, something like that um, coming out of high school. And so I definitely learned that for my sister. Like she, she did her work, she did it well. Like, and I was like, ah, that is a thing to do. So those are some of my lessons I learned specifically from my family. Um, and then the other thing, like I think about right now, kind of the overarching category I would give myself, aside from being an entrepreneur, I, I definitely feel like I am a storyteller. And so I, similar to you, had a love of books and beyond books, I think is like, was just like stories. And I loved anything that was like a series and that I could like get into really start to like learn some characters was heavy into uh sweet valley high and, <laughs> um 
I remember they put together some sort of saga. I need to look this up and see if this is still available somewhere. But they we'll definitely we'll definitely link this in the show notes. I mean, it was like they did all the little books and they did like this big book. And I remember, I don't remember what age I was reading it, maybe 13, 14, 15, or something like that. But it felt huge. And I was like, ah, look at this big book I'm reading. <laughs> and it was like this, like it went back in time to like their ancestors. And I'm sure there's like, you know deep race theory that I could do on that now. <laughs> but at the time, I was but just at the like time obsessed. Was... I was obsessed with the story. I thought it was just so cool. Um, so stories, I was really into the Hardy Boys. Remember Nancy Drew? Yeah, the definitely. I was really into the Hardy Boys. So I was just very interested in stories. Um, and that has definitely carried on. And I feel like I just learned to love the idea of just like communicating something that bring like brings people in through a story. So those are big ones. Um, the other one I thought of is like maybe a little too deep. <laughs> I was thinking like one thing that I feel like I learned some things from maybe good or bad was my proximity to whiteness. Okay. Say and more. I feel like, and we're going to get to this. We're going to talk a little bit about things that we're unlearning, but I think you know, there's like, uh, there's like articles about this, right? Like dominant culture ways of being, you know, yeah. like uh, obsession with timeliness and even like obsession with the written word. Like if it's not written down, it's not real. So I feel like I picked up some of those things and it's been interesting. And this has been something I've, I've learned about and thought about for some years now, but like having those things or that proximity to whiteness be like the norm, like that most people that I was around were white and that there was just kind of like a, a quietly understated way of doing things that like was built into me at, the, at that young age was some, is something that I'm having to unlearn. Um, and I think, you know, one of the, I think one thing people really like about me is how organized I am and how like kind of tidy I am about certain things, but I'm like, I don't know if some of, I think some of that might come from, from that proximity to whiteness in my, in my formative years. And then might be based off of like dominant culture. And then, yeah. So that's so interesting because I think that that brings up something that I hadn't even thought about. And we, I definitely haven't talked about it with you and that's code switching, right? Ooh, yeah. Because I am thinking a lot about, you just triggered something in me. Mm -hmm. And the way you and I, I think we're similar in that aspect, in the way that we think about time. One of the, but I think that one of the things that now that you just, you just made me think about it, is that I think I grew up in this space, like you said, mostly Black, but also part of, and this is, I guess it's something we can talk about a little bit later, but part of what happened to me, I think, was that I also, because I was good at school, was exposed to some things and exposed to some people, supposed to some of that dominant culture themes and that I spent a lot of time code switching, right? Mm -hmm. And just thinking about, so Stan's a really good student. Let's volunteer him for this, where mm -hmm. I go from my black school, you know, doing these things where I may go out into the wider community, being a part of this, this organization and having to translate that, like where there's a different set of values, a different set of norms mm -hmm. or whatever, and how we learn about code switching. Because like one of the things that happened for me was that, and this is not to, and you know, and I talked a little bit about this later about humility. That's one of, like you talked about what you learned from your parents. One of the big things I learned from my parents very specifically was humility and mm -hmm. always to be humble. That whatever mm -hmm. your gifts have, they're gifts from God mm -hmm. and that, but that there are other people with those gifts who are not as fortunate as you. Mm -hmm. So be careful mm -hmm. in how you use those gifts mm -hmm. and be careful not to take, make those gifts be more than what they are. Right. Right. So saying all of that, a lot of times I was like the black kid picked to be in these other spaces. Right. So okay. I was on, I would be picked, I did scholars ball, which is quiz ball, like Jeopardy. Mm -hmm. So I would be the black kid who represented our black school on the all city team. 
Mm-hmm. The all-city team would be all the rest of the white kids. And so learning how to code switch from that. Or, you know, I did um, community organization. I did a lot of volunteer work. So I would be the kid from our, from our Black school that represented our Black school on these community organizations with other teams mm-hmm. who, again, are almost all exclusively white mm-hmm. doing this community work. So again, you, you're, you're code switching from coming from your Black school, your Black community, that's kind of lifted you up as this example that celebrated you, that's, mm-hmm. you know, encouraged you. And then you're going to this place where you're like, this is a whole different ball game. And I'm right. learning how to code switch and how to be in both of those places at one time. So we've talked about this before. And I know that part of what you're saying when you talk about code switching is like, literally just like the way you speak. Yes. Is there more to it? I think there is. I think there is a way when you think about, when you think about, like, I think time is the perfect example. Mm. I think when I'm with a group of Black folks, I'm a little more loose about, like, I have expectations around time that, and this is not to be stereotypical, but I have different expectations around time. Just, you know, I'm like, oh, people are going to show up when they show up and I need to let that be okay. Right. Whereas if I'm dealing with a group of people who I don't know well, Mm-hmm. I'm trying to be on time. I'm trying to be, or even right. like, I think even if you just want it, not even necessarily black, white, more as like in my professional life, I'm definitely, mm-hmm. I'm the one, I'm kind of like you, I'm the one that's like, wait a minute, we need to start on time because mm-hmm. this is our profession, right? right? In a way that a lot of people are not. Again, I think some of that comes from that code switching from formal to informal, and all, and you know, and all that that entails, like you said, that exposure yeah. to the dominant culture. But I a guess lot of- that's always a question I have though, is like, I've been conditioned to think that being on time is good. And I think that there are definitely ways that you can reason that it is good, right? Like, so it's like, we all agree, we're going to meet at a certain time, especially if you think, again, in a professional setting, we all are going to stop what we're doing, get on the phone, talk about a thing, right? So it's respectful of everyone's time if we all come at the agreed upon time. But I just wonder how much of that is is true. Like how much of it is, does being on time equate to good? Yes. And so I think the only way to really, again, like, and like that's some unlearning and some relearning, right? Because ultimately it's what your purpose is behind. Right being and like I said it's it it, and it's the same not just to harp on time but it's the same about time about dress really about behavior and Mm -hmm. all kinds of things because now that we're talking about education and we'll get you know and talk particularly about formal education then you get into this whole idea of what even is which is the work that I do Mm -hmm. is what even is quote-unquote good behavior right Mm -hmm. standard standards of behavior Mm -hmm. are they in some ways reflective of again a dominant culture that right. was built on the oppression of people like you and me right so I think that again it's it's definitely a part of where you're coming from like is it to respect my time or is it to enforce a, a structure of yeah. order that is both that is trying to control and and somehow make control and do something with status and something with, like you said, something with judgment, I think. Right. And then also like, I think, cause I, cause I asked that question genuinely. And then like, I also, I'm trying to think like, how do I handle that myself? Cause you know, I've, I've been a manager before I've run meetings before. And so I'm like, I am very much trying to respect people's time. However, there is always some understanding that needs to be applied to a particular context. So, so yes, I, I think it's everything you said and the idea that it's situational and it's not, it's not like an arbitrary set of like, if you are late, X happens without yes. considering why you might be late um, and letting people be people and yeah. realize that like, for whatever the thing is, time, dress, whatever, that there are contexts, yeah, important context pieces that you have to consider too. Yeah, and and like what 
again, why are you, I mean, why are you making this arbitrary, like this rule, right. this, this decision? Like, what right. is it really about? Is it, right. what is it advancing? Is it advancing your own agenda mm-hmm. or the agenda that's good for everybody else? Mm-hmm. And I think that's something, again, that we're all learning mm-hmm. and learning how to be more equitable, how to be more fair mm-hmm. and unlearning how to not be rigid, right? punitive all the time. And, you know, like you said, I'm learning those dominant, those dominant ideas. Maybe, maybe what the dominant ideas are based off of is like a lack of nuance. Because I think in all of these situations, there's just nuance, right? Rules are made for a reason, sometimes good, sometimes bad, but there can be allowances for people to be people. And I think that's what we don't get told in formal learning settings. And, you know, that's making me think of another question. I'm curious to hear how you think your formal learning impacted just like your general approach to learning. Cause you talked at the beginning about how like you are a learner. I'm curious where you think that like school came into making that be as it is. Well, I think for me, and this is something as I've gotten older and particularly in the work that I do still in education and working for, you know, a formal education organization, school encouraged me in a way that it has not for lots of black men like me. Right. Like, because I was good at school for whatever reason, be it my natural curiosity the way I was raised, because I was good at school, I was always encouraged at school. And mm-hmm. so it made me want to do more. It's, I mean, you know, it was positive reinforcement. Like you get the good right. grade. Oh, wow, Stan reads really well. So of course, Stan wants to read more. Mm-hmm. Wow, Stan writes really neat. So of course, Stan wants to practice his handwriting more. It's like the more praise and more reinforcement you get for something, the more you want to do it well. And so mm-hmm. I, for me, it, I mean, it definitely being good at school means that like, it doesn't intimidate me to want to read and learn more about a topic that I don't know anything about. Mm-hmm. Right. Or even it, I think it, because for me, learning doesn't have a trauma associated with it. Right. It, like it, it's fun. Whereas mm-hmm. a lot of black men, you know, School is not their thing. That cuts off a a willingness to learn or to think about learning, particularly when you associate learning and school, Mm -hmm. right? Instead of the broad definition of learning, when you only approach learning in school and people saying you're not good at school means you're not good at learning. Right. That it probably, it takes a lot of work to unlearn, to unlink those two things. Right. And that's making me think about something. I I think about like getting a new job, right? And the transition period that you go through when you have a new job. And even if you, you know, in a a case where you're getting hired to do something, you obviously have shown proficiency at that thing, right? So you've convinced them like, yes, you have what you need to do this job. Even in that, you still have to learn that particular job. And I will say, I'm coming at this from a perspective of the types of jobs you do sitting at a computer. So, because that's the kind of jobs that I've had. Um, But like, you know, it's like I took a job at Teach for America. I was doing graphic design and I'm a graphic designer. So I don't need to learn how to do graphic design. However, I have to learn how that team works. I have to learn the people on that team. I have to learn the structures of that team. I have to learn when I start to feel comfortable speaking up. I have to learn, you know, literally like the platforms that they use, the like cadences that they run on. And that is something that like, I've, I've changed jobs a lot. I'm a, I'm a job changing kind of person. <laughs> um, and so I've been through that a couple of times. It always feels awkward every single time, no matter whether you're leaving an organization or whether you're going within an organization, it has always felt awkward for me. It, but I'm like, that's just part of it. 
like when you start a new job, you have to learn the job. And I can see a, a place where somebody who might have a negative experience with learning, like you said, where it's like school becomes a negative association to learning, how that could be really a, a deterrent. And so it's like, all right, cool. I'm going to get this job. I'm going to stay here. And that can really limit upward mobility. Yeah. Opportunities to just to li- to literally just learn new things. It's yeah. like, again, I was training. I got a job as a graphic designer. I learned so much about communication, like high stakes communication, for example, like crisis communication. I didn't know anything about crisis communication really before I did that job. And then as a graphic designer, I'm like doing graphic design for crisis communication and learned a ton about crisis communication, which I now know because I got, I took that job. And so that is fascinating. I hadn't made that kind of connection that like that, that negative association can come with you and really impact you in lots of ways. Yeah. Like think of, I mean, just think about being told as a student that your idea, your voice does not matter. Like you just talk, like, you know, like don't talk, like what you're saying is wrong, like don't have a voice. And so, like you said, think about all the things that you learn on any job. Like you have to learn when to speak up, right. when not to speak up. Well, you've just been told all of your life that your voice is not important mm-hmm. because you don't know how to say things in this manner, right. because you don't use correct grammar, because you don't know how to spell mm-hmm. yet, or you don't know how to spell in the way that we teach you. Right then your voice doesn't matter. Therefore, then what's the next, what's the next logical step? Then I'll just be quiet. Mm -hmm. I'll not say anything, which again, goes right back to your point. I just won't take this opportunity. I just won't try for this opportunity because I already in myself know that I'm not going to make it Mm -hmm. because they told me that I didn't do this correctly, that I Mm -hmm. didn't do that correctly. And not this, not just that I didn't do it correctly. They didn't teach me how to do it correctly or how to do another thing, mm-hmm. right? And so like you said, exactly, that's exactly what happens to so many folks. Right. I don't know how we went from learning to like indicting the whole system. <laughs> but I don't think, and, but I see, and I think that's the thing that's with learning is that it's not learning that's the indictment. Schooling, I think can rightfully be indicted. Schooling in the United States. Come with most, it. Come with it. We're about to come with it. I think, and I guess this formal education in the United States, particularly for, especially for men who look like me, mm-hmm. I think um, can be indicted because education was not built for Black folks mm. in real ways. I mean, that's the beauty of us is that we've taken this structure that we were not supposed to have. Right. And we've done so much with it and have made it in a lot of ways. Right. We've, we've tried to bend it to our will mm-hmm. in a lot of ways and have been successful. But just as a, as a structure, no, it, 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 it definitely deserves to be indicted and mm. tried and found guilty. Like you said, you and I were both teachers. That's one of the weird tension. That was always one of the weird tensions for me as a teacher, because I am, and I think it's one of the things that made me an okay, maybe like they're maybe a pretty good teacher, I will say, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. is that oddly enough, because I didn't have that negative experience with mm-hmm. school, I didn't I didn't impose that on my kids. Right. Particularly my black boys. I was like, in a way, it was like just my physical presence being there was like, oh, maybe this school thing is mm-hmm. not so bad. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and also just that my expectations for them were different because I was like, no, you can do this. You can do it. Yeah. You can do this. Like this, you, you can do this. Right. Like even in terms of like behavior. Right. No, you, you're not, I hate using the word bad. Like we're, and this evolved, like this wasn't, I came into the classroom knowing this. But this, but no, you just need, we need some processes. We need some things mm-hmm. to help you be successful, mm-hmm. to help you 
you know, function in this classroom. Because like, there are some rules, there are some things that I have to do to keep you safe. Right. But I'm going to help you to help me to help you, you know? Right. And just this idea of, again, lots of Black boys don't get that. Right. And they definitely don't get it the way I got it through all of my schooling for the most part. Yeah, so. I think about all of the things that I would do differently as a teacher today. Like just even, you know, you talk about like the term bad or like even like helping you be successful. Like what is the definition of success and like helping the, you know, I work with one of my friends, friend and client now who's education consultant. And, you know, one of the things she talks a ton about and it's all over her website is about student agency and student voice and I wasn't thinking about that when I was a teacher (laughs) and I'm like, man, helping kids to not, I mean, literally to go back to what you're saying is to not only know that their voice is important, but to actually give them space for their voice. So teach you like a concept, but then also like a skill of like, your voice is important and let me make some space for you right now to use it in real ways like that like your actual voice is going to determine what happens in this classroom man yeah it's powerful i mean i think that's what that's what happened to me you know it's like i went to a white private christian school in ohio and i don't think there was any squashing of my voice at any point and so like you know i think this is a silly example but like one of my teachers would bring donuts sometimes and he was the coach of the golf team. And so there was like a couple of golfers in my class and he would bring donut holes for the whole class, but he knew what these couple golfers liked. So he would bring them like a whole donut. And so one time I was like, I was like, why does he get a whole donut? And I was like, I like powdered sugar with lemon in the middle. So you, you, you had a gap in your information about what kind of big donut I want. Now I'm going to fill that for you. It is powdered sugar on the outside with lemon in the middle. He, next time he came in, he had donut holes for everybody else, an apple fritter for the golfer, and a lemon donut for me. And I was like, thank you very much. I'll take yeah. my donut. And so it's like a silly example, but I was just like, that's not fair. Yeah. <laughs> and I, mean, I would like a big donut as well. Yeah, I, like so I think we all, I think you and I particularly, like I have those examples too. I remember in 11th grade, our math teacher tried to give us assigned seats. I'm like, <laughs> I started a petition in the class. I was of course like, you did. I was like, this is unfair. We want to sit if we want to sit too. We're in 11th grade. This is an advanced math class. That's right. We know how to be like, we're sorry we're talking. I think I did say we apologize for talking during the lesson. Mm-hmm. But we want to sit next to who we want to sit to. The whole class signed it. <laughs> he was like, he called me the troublemaker. No, the instigator. Mm-hmm. But we went back to sitting where we wanted to sit. Yeah. And I like you said, it's because again, you said over the years, our voices have been encouraged mm-hmm. and to the point where like, come on. Like we, we were yeah. taught to use them. Right. There are things, now that I'm out of the classroom again, there are things that I think I was pretty good there. One thing that I do, would kind of, and this is, comes from my work that I do now, is I think a lot about is this idea of behavior and that there is a certain way to be mm. in school. And it kind of goes back to your agency. I would think a lot about how I did my procedures and what was necessary for. Right. Cause like so much of this, and like I said, since we've been, since we're indicting the education system, we can go ahead and indict completely. Um, so much of what, again, we consider excellence goes back to that dominant frame, which again right. goes back to that quiet is better. Mm. Orderly, order, orderliness is better. Mm-hmm. Neatness is better. Right why but really why like what purpose is your neatness right like there's a difference between saying this needs to be neat because so that other people can see what you're communicating right Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. as opposed to this needs to be neat because i said so right this needs to be neat because this will somehow reflect better on you Mm -hmm. which again goes back to this whole idea of if you follow directions good things will happen Mm -hmm. to you or people will treat you fairly if you follow the rules, which 
we have all learned this week and have been learning all summer and have been learning since Black folks have been in the country that this is not true. So I would think a lot about framing things in that way mm -hmm. and framing the whole idea of, you know, what is me being in control and what is me helping you and really thinking about what's necessary in terms of that behavior. Like, does it need to be quiet in here all the time? Right. Like that, and that's just an example that I think about a lot. Yeah. And like, even I was in like thinking a lot about, you know, just the things that like thinking about, you know, some organizations where, and I, I hope this organization doesn't do it, but the, I, you know, the organization where they were like, you will earn some of your learning supplies. Oof. Like, really? You're going to have to learn things? You're going to have to earn things that you should have? Yeah. Like thinking about that, thinking about stuff like that and how those things were held up as models mm -hmm. to other people. Mm -hmm. And so now, because those things were learned up as models, now you got a whole generation of students who have to unlearn that mm -hmm. essentially and who have to be able to go to places and be like, I need this resource. Yeah. But they, but they think that they have to earn a resources that they should have already have had, right, right. you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, speaking of unlearning, uh, we, we, in prep for this conversation, we're trying to jot down some things that we are either still learning or unlearning. So again, like I'll put that to you, like, what are things that you're unlearning at this age? As folks, particularly in 2021, we're unlearning white supremacy like we're unlearning it yeah I mean I think that's going to be a through line through our whole season it's just that we're unlearning we're talking about the ways in which we're learning about equity we're learning about justice what that right. really looks like what right. that really what that really um what that really means yeah and then as far as learning just being more authentic being okay with that discomfort that Same comes more. with that comes with being more authentic like and i think some of and just when you express your voice and it's and it lands in a way that is not particularly agreed with at first mm -hmm. but you know it's true to who you are mm -hmm. just being okay with that discomfort being okay with like a real easy example is right now, I'm not in the best of shape. <laughs> like, mm. this, like I'm not in the best of shape. And so mm -hmm. that makes me not want to work out, but I have to go work out and I have to be in that discomfort of, this is not going to feel good for a minute. Like, mm -hmm. but you have to do it. That's, that's the shallow answer, but e that's the shallow example. But even like mentally, you know, there are things that you have to do to work on yourself that are not going to be comfortable. Right that people are not going to like, but you have to somehow be okay in that discomfort and push through if that's who you are, if you're going to be authentically yourself. Yeah. What about you? What are you thinking about? Um, well, the biggest thing I'm unlearning is obviously most of my life's learning about the Bible. <laughs> um, which is, as we talked about, wild. A little, it feels a little, feels a little weird. Um, but I feel like I have the right tools to do that, and so that's the bulk of it. I think the other thing that I'm on learning right now is sort of limit limiting ideas about money. Um, I have been an entrepreneur now for closing in on a year almost a year. And the exciting, well, the scary part about that is that there's no guaranteed check on the 15th and the 30th, um, which definitely took some months to get used to that idea because that was terrifying. <laughs> I was like, ah. no, that, that's terrifying to me. It is. It was like, I terrifying. Think that's, that's terrifying to most people. Yeah. So kudos and, to you. Certainly there were some months where, I mean, there was, there was one month, I think I made like $300 and 
that was scary. Um, I had a, a ton of privilege. I, I have a partner who has a check that comes on the 15th and 30th. Um, and then, you know, the, the way that my business is the money is just not always even. So it like shakes out. It just like may, you know, comes in chunks, different chunks, but the, the thing that's freeing about that, once I got past that fear, most of that fear, I don't say I'm completely past that, but once I got past most of that fear is that there's also no cap on the amount of money that I can make. So that has been an interesting thing to kind of wrestle with and to realize that I don't have any aspirations to wealth, really, truly. Um, And, you know, in these different sort of entrepreneurial circles that I kind of peek into, I won't say I sit into that, I peek into them sometimes. There's some language and some like energy around this idea of developing a lot of wealth. And I am very interested in this idea of like generational wealth and having something to pass on to any children that I may have. Um, And so that to me, and when I think about generational wealth, I think like setting my kids up to have opportunities to do whatever they want. Um, And so that feels different from the idea of like wealth in my mind is like, oh, I'd have enough money to buy a big mansion and a giant car and, and all these things. And so I'm like, I don't aspire to that, but there is something nice about this idea, but I, once I got it and held, held it, I was like, oh, like, I feel like these, like some like really limiting ideas that like, would, would I even want to have a lot of money, right? Not like wealth, but like a lot of, uh, I don't know how to describe it, a lot of money. And so it's been interesting just yeah. to, to realize that I had sort of a very sort of fixed mindset that like, even as I, I talked about being a kind of person who changes jobs, I'm like, okay, I change jobs. I go to the next level. I yeah. make like a marginal amount more. Great. Yeah. I do that for a little while. I go to the next level. I make a marginal mm-hmm. amount more. Took I even in my career have taken a couple lateral moves where I stay on the same level, take, take the same job, same band, and then have same salary for, you know, longer than I even have wanted. And again, like that all felt very like, mostly comfortable. Yeah. Like that just felt kind of like what you because do. Because that's what you knew. Yeah. Yes. And so an idea that like, it does not have to be just like every year on your tax return. It's just a marginal amount more, right? It could be a lot more, more. and that could be okay. And then you could decide what you want to do with that money and you know, whatever. And so it's been interesting just to realize that that is, an idea that I had that I didn't really know that I had and yes. trying to unlearn that and figure out, you know, how much money do I want to have? How much do I want to work for? And yeah, that, that, that there's an option that you can choose the amount of money you want to have, which is not an option that black folks have ever had. In right. Most black folks, most black right. folks still don't have. Right. But this idea that you could maybe choose the life that it, it's fascinating, really. And especially, you know, when I think about like, like given the fact that I am my own boss, I decide how many clients I have. I decide essentially how much money comes in the door, right? In a range. And so I'm like, I could max out my client base every month and decide like, I want to make five, six figures a month. Like I could, I could push that hard and work all the time. But then I have to say to myself, I'm like, you've been married for a year and four months. Like, <clears throat> is that how you want to start your marriage? Like, do you want to start your marriage at your computer all the time? Or do you want to make a comfortable amount of money, put in the bank and go sit on the couch with your husband? And so, and then I'm like, as we think about like our goals, we have like short, medium and long-term goals. Let's make the amount of money that hits our short, medium, and long-term goals and then stop working. Right. And not work yourself to death trying to hit a certain number. So yeah. it's, it's just been an interesting uh, set of things to think about on a regular basis. Um, yeah, that's that. And then in terms of what I am still learning actively, um, 
connecting to what I just talked about. I'm still learning about being a business owner. There's a ton to learn. Um, I'm going just now finishing up my first tax cycle as a business person. I, I had a full-time job through June of 2020. So like it was like half a year, half a tax year. Um, but there's just a lot to learn on a, on a daily basis about how to run a business well. And that is fun. I have a, I have an Instagram post I'm getting ready to write that, um, will be up by the time you hear this, but man, I love being an entrepreneur. I love it. Oh, I love it. And so those are lessons that I love learning. Like even the hard ones, I'm like, cool that I did that badly quick, let's grab the lesson and not do that badly again. Like, so, um, and then, and I'm like mildly embarrassed slash mildly guilty to say this. One big thing that I'm trying to learn is some black history. And I, I really feel like I should know more black history than I do, but I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't comprehensively know black history. And I even feel like when I'm talking to you, sometimes you say things in this way of like, we should know that. And I'm like, I don't know that. <laughs> and I, I feel embarrassed. But the good thing is my sister, without ever having talked to her about this necessarily, got me this cool book on, um, on Black history for my birthday. And so okay. I'm going to read that. <laughs> so my first what, what book? The book is called 400 Souls, A Community okay. History of African America, 1619 through 2019. Sounds good. Sounds like that's the other thing. I want to read the 1619 project too. See there again. I don't know what that is. The 1619. Well, so we'll 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 Google that. (laughs) By the New York Times, 1619 is the year that the first Africans arrived in what we now call the United States. And so the 1619 project was a whole series of articles that the New York Times magazine produced with that as the theme, with that as the starting point. Mm-hmm. Um, Nicole Hannah-Jones, who is a writer for the New York Times Magazine, edited this amazing project. We will link to it in our show notes as well, because it's really good. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's a really a thing that conservatives were mad because it, it essentially says we should center, if you're not centering black folks, mm-hmm in your telling of American history, you're telling it wrong. Mm. So. A word. Yeah, a word. On that note, (laughs) what's up for you this week? We're going to keep it rolling with this Black history thing. Do it. That's what we're talking about. Do it. So this is, what's up for me is I've been into audiobooks Mm -hmm. and I have, I listened to what is my favorite book from a child. I remember when my mom got it for me, I think I was in the fifth grade mm-hmm. for Christmas. It is called Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry. Mm-hmm. It is by Mildred Taylor. And it is about a Black family in Mississippi during the Great Depression. And it sounds really depressing, but mm-hmm. it's not. Basically, it is, it is one of those coming of age books. And it's about a little girl named Cassie. And she has three brothers. And it's about her... It's about her coming of age regarding the society that they live in. And she's, and part of the reason that she's been sheltered from that society is that they have a, relative to the other Black people in their community, they have a bit of status because they own their own land. Got it. When everybody else is sharecroppers. Okay. And so because of that, she has a certain independence and a certain way of speaking and a certain she's experienced life in a way that other people haven't. And so it's her, it's her understanding of how, of how fortunate she is, mm-hmm. but also of like how society really is. It's amazing. That's what's up for me. Well, I what's might, um, well, I, sorry, before I go on to that, my, I've been reading to my niece in the one night a week. And so maybe I'll read this to her when we finish the line, the witch in the wardrobe. Yes. Cool. Uh, what's up for me is, so for those who don't know, I am an amateur ceramicist in light retirement right now because I haven't uh, done much since I started dating Lance because I because that drive down to that ceramics place is really far and I couldn't get there. Anyway, um, we discovered something called the Great Pottery Showdown, which is basically the 
British baking show, but with pottery. And it's British. It's fabulous. I am obsessed. So they start with 10 people. They have three challenges a week. It's literally the exact same thing. So it's three challenges a week. But the cool thing about pottery is that it takes much longer to do these things. So they have to, they get a certain amount of time, do like the main thing, it has to dry. And they do like these small challenges. And then you take this one piece through to the end of the show. I love it, right? So the show is great. It's entertaining. It's like the same. If you like the British Bake Off, you'll love it. My favorite thing about this, so you know how they have on the British Bake Off, they have Paul Hollywood and Mary Berry, or that's how they were at at the, the two people at the beginning. They have these uh, two master ceramicists, Kate Malone and Keith Brimer Jones. And I, I did not know who they were prior to this, but Keith, you know how like on the baking show, sometimes Paul Hollywood will like shake people's hands when they do a really good job. Yes. Keith cries. <laughs> he gets so emotional about the pottery that he just wells up and can't talk anymore. And it is my favorite thing about this show because literally he'll just be like, he grabbed a a plate, right? He asked them to make a full 12 piece tea set. So the guy, he had a bunch of problems, you know, the pot cracked and all these things, but he did this really nice little like painting decoration on the saucer. He picks up the saucer and he points to the paint decoration and he can't even speak. He's just like, it's just so beautiful. And I'm like, it is pottery, sir. <laughs> now, granted, that is a nice saucer. I don't know if I'd be crying about it, but it is it, it, the overwhelming feeling that he gets and just his passion for pottery is it's... funny because you're like, you're crying about a piece of ceramic ware, but also just really awesome. And so oh, it's that, great. That I highly like, recommend it. That sounds like something I will be adding to my list of things <laughs> I need to watch. It's good. It's on HBO Max. All right. So I think that is our show for today. All right. Support for this podcast comes from Lalex on York Creative Studios. The Family Meeting is produced by me and Allison. Additional production, audio mixing, and sound editing by Will Salua, who also wrote and produced our theme song entitled 135th and Coffee. Need a unique track, beat, or sound mixing and editing? You can find his email address and IG handle in our show notes every week. You can find the show notes on what we discussed, including links posted in the blog section on lilacsonyork.com. And you can, keep, you can keep up with the show on Instagram at lilacsonyork. You can find me on social at Allison K. Mason on IG and Twitter, even though I do not tweet. You can find me on social at twice11 on IG and Twitter, even though I don't post on IG. Thanks for listening. Meet you here next week. Bye.